So I mentioned that we're in the season of Advent and that Advent is this time of waiting. Uh, it's, we're waiting for the coming of Christmas, really the celebration of Jesus' coming. And what that means is it's a season of doing something that most of us are not very good at. It's a season of doing something that doesn't come naturally to us. Waiting, right? Who's good at that? What's one of the first things parents have to teach small children? Be patient, right? Like that, that kid, he doesn't just want that dessert. He wants it now, right? Be patient. Philadelphians, you know, we're kind of known for being impatient, right? Like traffic especially. If you sit at that green light, it goes green, and you're there for more than a second. You're getting the horn, okay? Like I do it to people too. It's just the culture here, you know? And I, I'm cool with it. Amazon. Why is Amazon able to take over the world? Because they can get you your package in two days with free shipping. And if I ordered it, and two days later, that's not on my stoop, probably because someone stole it, I'm going to be angry, right? A lot of our anger, a lot of our stress comes because we're impatient, because we're not good at waiting. But there are some people I know who, who are patient. Uh, when I think of patient people, this will tell you a little bit about myself. When I think of patient people, I think of Golden State Warriors fans. Because, that's a basketball team, for those of you who don't watch sports. Um, and it's this team where, like, a few of the best players in the NBA kind of hatched a conspiracy and stacked their team so that now they basically win every year. And so they'll have these points in the season where things start to go sideways a little bit. They lose a few games, but they never panic. Their fans are patient because they know by the end of the year, they're going to get it together and win the championship. This, this year, they've already got like eight losses. They're in third place, but they don't care. They're going to win the championship. It's annoying as a Sixers fan because I know they're probably right, but it, it, it does show us that you're able to be patient to the degree that you believe good things are coming. It's going to end well, so I can be patient, even when it goes poorly in this moment. Now, where, how do you get that in life and not just in a basketball season? Well, God has promised to his people that joy and rejoicing are surely coming for them. So, get your hopes up for God's promise while patiently serving him with patient service because it's good, because it's God's, and because it's already being fulfilled. That's what we're going to talk about from this passage. So first, with patient service. The main characters of the story that we've just read are Zechariah and Elizabeth, his wife. The two of them, he's a priest, a Jewish priest. Uh, She's from a priestly family, the, the line of Aaron. And we read that they are righteous before God and blameless, but they were also they were also unable to have children. It says Elizabeth was barren. And now they are advanced in years, beyond the age when people would normally be able to conceive. In other words, they're a waiting family. They've wanted this thing in their lives that they've now been waiting probably decades and still have not yet seen. Now you say, well, but... Maybe they didn't want to have kids, you know? Maybe they got over it. Not everybody wants to have kids. Back then, everybody wanted to have kids, okay? If you were a righteous Israelite at this time and you were married, the expectation was you were going to have children. So that if it didn't happen, people would look at you like something was wrong with you. <clears throat> we're going to see later in our passage that uh, Elizabeth was the subject of reproach. It was a shameful thing for her to not have children. Those of you who struggle with infertility today can probably relate to that if you've gone through a season of that. All the family and friends asking you, so you guys thinking about kids? And seeing the thousandth picture of your friend's kid on Facebook, going to another baby shower for someone else's kid when you don't have one. That'll take a toll on you, right? That's taxing. Psychologically taxing. It's shame-inducing. You feel like something is wrong with you. Zechariah and Elizabeth are righteous, and yet they go through that experience. 
They're waiting. And in that sense, they're a lot like the nation of Israel at this time. When Jesus comes, you know, this, we're in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. The story here is the events leading up to Jesus' birth at Christmas, which is why we're looking at them now. When that happens, the nation of Israel, God's people before the coming of Christ, have just gone through 400 years of silence from God. They were used to, as a nation, God speaking to them through the prophets. And the last thing God had said to them was that a deliverer was going to come. A savior would come and deliver them from all the things that plagued them, from their sins, from their sorrows, from their oppressors, from evil, all that. And then for 400 years, there was silence. So there's been this waiting for the deliverer in their lives, much like the waiting that is taking place in Elizabeth's life for a child. She and Zechariah are kind of a microcosm of those who are waiting for the salvation of the Lord. And what do we find them doing while they're waiting? We find them patiently serving the Lord where they are. We read in verse 6 that they were righteous before God, blameless in his sight. Doesn't mean they were sinless, but that they were godly people. Verse 8, what do we find Zechariah doing? He's going up to the temple in Jerusalem to perform his duty as a priest. The priests at that time had certain weeks of the year that they were supposed to travel from their town to Jerusalem to perform their service in the temple. And when his turn comes, he goes and he faithfully executes his service. Now, after he goes, some crazy stuff happens, right? The angel of the Lord appears to him. He gets this prophecy of a birth where his kid's going to be great before the Lord, and then the Lord himself is going to come. That's no ordinary experience. But the point is, Zechariah didn't go looking for an extraordinary experience. He didn't say, man, my life is boring. I want God to do something crazy in my life. I'm going to go to the temple. It was, this is what the Lord's assigned me. I'm just going to go do it. And God takes care of the rest. There's probably things in your life that you want to see God do in your future, that you're waiting on him for. But whatever those things are that you're hopeful for in your future, here's the fact. There is a place that God has you right now. And there is an opportunity you have in the life that God has assigned you right now to serve him and to serve others. Serve him patiently while you wait for the fulfillment of his promise. But see, what we tend to do is we we delay serving God until we see the fulfillment. And so we say to God, well, God, you know, once, once you heal me, of this disease, once uh, my kids get through this kind of stage or, or once life settles down a little bit, then I'll do the things that I know you want me to do. When God's saying, you can do those things today, right? Like, I, I use myself as an example. I, there were some things in my marriage that I had a sense that God wanted to change. And I was thinking to myself, once a new year comes around, you know, like I'm gonna make a new year resolution. I like new year's resolutions. I'll probably make some. But as I was preparing this this week and studying this passage, I felt the Lord saying like, well, well, you're married today, right? We can wait till the new year to start loving your wife better. Like you could do that today. I'm like, all right, yeah, I could. There's a life that God has assigned you today. But we tend to not want to get our hopes up. We don't want to get our hopes up for the future promise. So we say, God, I'll wait and see if you fulfill it. And then I'll do what I know you want me to do. But if you trust God's promise now, you can serve him patiently today even when that thing that you want isn't coming. Because you know he's promised rejoicing in your future when the Lord comes. Now on the flip side, some of us, if we don't see God's favor in our lives, we take that to mean that we must be doing something wrong, that we must be sinning against him. That if we just cleaned our life up in some way, if we just fixed this thing, then that thing we want would happen. You're not that in control of your life. God doesn't work that way. 
where, okay, just serve him, and boom, he does for you. And this story shows us that, right? Zechariah and Elizabeth are righteous. They've been serving God. They've been faithful in their service, and God still hasn't given them a child. Sometimes the trouble in your life is a result of your sins. You've done wrong, and God's giving you over to the consequences. But sometimes you've been living the way God wants you to live, and he's just telling you to wait. It's because it, the timing belongs to him. He decides when the blessing comes, and he decides what the blessing looks like in your life. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing something wrong. It means continue to faithfully serve him and trust him to be the one who fulfills the promise. When you do that, you're showing that God is worth serving even when he doesn't give you stuff. You're showing that he himself is actually the one that you love the most, not just the things that he gives you. And that shows the glory of God. He'll allow you to wait so that he can be glorified through that kind of service. Now try that for a few weeks, right? And you'll start to feel weary at some point. You'll start to say, okay, Mike, that was motivating. Yeah, I'm going to go do that. And then the magic doesn't happen, right? The thing you want doesn't just come. God does actually make you wait. And you get weary. And you say, man, I've been serving God for all this time. And that, you know, still not happening. Still not seeing the fruit. I'll, I'll use my marriage as an example again. Sometimes I can have these realizations where I realize, like, yeah, you know what would probably make my marriage better if I stopped thinking about myself so much? And so I'm going to try to prioritize my wife's interests. Like, good idea. Jesus said that. So I go do it, and I do it for a week. And it's great. But not everything in my marriage is fixed after a week, and I slide right back into selfishness. Not seeing the fruit, not seeing the thing that I wanted out of that. The funny thing is that uh, today, there is actually kind of a pop psychology message that would tell you that that's a good thing. Um, so I talk to people who say, say to me, you know, I spend so much of my time thinking about other people. I spend so much of my time serving other people's needs. But who's thinking of me? I got to stop and I got to take care of myself or else no one else will. Probably not. You probably don't need to think about yourself more than you already do, right? Most of our problems come from the fact that we always are thinking about ourselves, right? Now look, if you can't take biblical rest because you always have to be needed by someone else and meeting their needs, that's a problem, right? If, if you can't spend time relating to God yourself because you're not actually serving him, you're just serving people to get something from them, that's a problem. But what our world means today when it talks about self-care is just different from what the Bible means when it talks about rest. Now, that's kind of another sermon. I can't get into all that today, but my point for today is simply, if you're weary in serving others, in serving the Lord. The solution to that is not to think of yourself more. The solution to that is to think of God more, right? To go to him and to seriously consider, are all the things I'm busying myself with actually things that God has assigned me? Or are they things I feel like I have to do because I need to be needed by other people? Because I get something from that. Now, sometimes you're going to find out the answer is, yeah, God did actually assign you that, Right? I got a kid. Sometimes it's wearying to take care of him. But guess what? That's my assignment from the Lord. And when I get weary with that, my solution isn't I got to take some time away and think of myself. It's I got to depend on God in new ways. <laughs> I got to trust his promise. I got to trust that joy is coming for me as I patiently serve him in my life today. You can do that. Zechariah doesn't say, man, all these years I've been serving God, just still doesn't give me a kid. I'm going to take this rotation off from the temple, do some self-care. We'll let someone else take care of it. And you don't have to either. Why? That's what the next three points are about. First reason, 
that you can just get your hopes up, keep serving God patiently, is because God's promise is good. So Zechariah is there, he's offering up his incense, and the angel of the Lord appears to him. And what does the angel of the Lord say to him? How come you don't have a kid yet? No. (laughs) He says, do not be afraid. That's how God speaks to those who patiently wait for him. Do not be afraid. Is that a good word? Do not be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. You know, God hears your prayers as you patiently wait for him. That's a good word, right? That's how God speaks to those who patiently wait for him. What's he praying for? What prayer is this referring to? Well, we can safely assume that Zechariah and Elizabeth, righteous people, would have been praying for a child, right? They would have wanted to give birth. And if you have something you want and you go before God and you discern it's a good desire, pray fervently for it. Keep praying for it. Even when God is telling you to wait, right? But their prayer is bigger than that. And we know that because the the most direct reference to prayer in this passage is the prayer that's happening outside of the temple. The people of Israel are praying with Zechariah as he goes into the temple. And the people of Israel don't gather in Jerusalem to pray for one guy to have kids. They gather in Jerusalem to pray for the same thing Israel's been praying for for 400 years, for salvation, for the Messiah to come. And so the prayer that's been heard is the prayer that for 400 years the people hadn't heard back from God on. And now the angel comes and he says, but today, today the prayer has been heard and you will have a son. And this son that they're going to have isn't actually the ultimate fulfillment of that. He says, you will have a son and you will have joy. And not only will you have joy, verse 14 says, many will have joy at this child of yours. That's how we know it's not an ordinary child. I had a kid, I had a lot of joy. My grandparents, they loved that too. But Nations didn't stream in to see my son, right? And then they shouldn't have, right? He's great, but, but this child, it says, will be mighty, will be great before God. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn the sons of Israel, the people of Israel, back to their God in order to do what? To prepare a people for the coming of the Lord himself. This child is great because he's the beginning of the return of the Lord, He points beyond himself to prepare a people for someone else, for the coming of the Lord God himself. And that's why it's worth rejoicing in. That's why it's such a joyful occasion. Some of you want God's word to you to be, in three weeks, you're going to have a child. Next year, you're going to get married. In a month, your disease is going to go away. In a year, you're going to get a much better job. And so, um, just think about that, right? Like, if God really gave you those things, would you really have joy? If God healed your disease, but didn't give you himself, would you really have joy? Here's the fact you've got to face. There's a lot of people out there with a clean bill of health who have no joy. There's a lot of people out there with big families, no joy. Great career, no joy. Uh, Actor Jim Carrey said, I wish everyone could experience being rich and famous so they'd see it wasn't the answer to anything. Not only that it's not the answer to everything, he says it's not the answer to anything, right? None of your deepest needs are met in that. Joy is often lacking in our lives because we've hitched our happiness to stuff that can't deliver it. So you can hear this incredible news. The Bible calls this good news. It says it's going to bring rejoicing. We can hear that Christmas after Christmas, Advent after Advent, and say, well, yeah, but what I really need, <laughs> no, what you really need is the Lord, right? What you really need is his return. 
you can get a disease healed. But when the Lord comes, all disease will be no more. We have a hymn we sing here. Sickness, sorrow, pain, and death are felt and feared no more when the Lord comes. Injustice and oppression are replaced with justice and love. Anxiety is replaced with peace. Depression is replaced with joy when the Lord comes. Guilt is replaced with righteousness. Faith with sight. Full communion and peace with God enjoyed face to face with your creator and with your savior to be fully known and truly loved forever. That's what's coming when the Lord comes. See, sometimes you've got to kind of chill on your hopes, right? Because you get your hopes up for stuff that's not actually that good. Parents are like, oh, I just want my kids get out of diapers. Then, yeah, that'll be cool, but like, there's going to be new problems then. So maybe chill on that one a bit. But this is the one hope you don't have to chill on. It's really going to be that good. It's going to be better than I can actually describe it today. Like literally, the Bible, no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love him. It's, it's immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. It's really going to be that good. So you got to get your hopes up, right? you got to jack them up a bit. You don't hope in this enough. You're not excited enough for this. It's better than you can possibly imagine. Don't be, don't be too cool or you know, too cynical to hope and be looking forward to the coming of the Lord. But that's scary, okay? It's scary to get your hopes up like that because what if it doesn't happen? How can we know it's going to happen? Next reason. Get your hopes up for God's promise because it's God's. So in verse 18, Zechariah asks the question I've just asked, the question we often ask when we hear great news. How do I know, <laughs> right? How will I know this? He looks at himself. He looks at his wife. He says, we're old. We're barren. Not seeing how this is going to happen. How do I know that you're going to do it? Prove it. You know, the thing we often say back to God when we hear this news. And the angel's response to him is funny because what does he say? He basically just says like, uh, I'm here, uh, I'm Gabriel, I'm the angel, I've come from God. What more proof do you need? Like, he points him back to the source, really. He says, I've been sent by God. This is God's promise. There you go. There's your proof. I mean, what else could he have done, right? He already appeared to him. <laughs> like a lot of us say, well, if God would just appear to me, or if he would speak to me in like an audible voice. Well, here is the angel. He's appeared to him. He's spoken to him in an audible voice. And what do we find Zechariah, a righteous guy, saying? But how will I really know? Unbelief is that powerful, right? Like, be honest. I, I'm a doubter, too. It's kind of like I'm prone to that. If God came to you tonight, appeared to you, spoke to you audibly, and said, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to make everything right, how long would it take you to start doubting it? A day? Maybe two? When things still haven't gotten better yet? And you start saying, well, was that really God? I mean, how do I really know he's going to keep that promise? You start, like, Googling, like, premonitions and weird dreams. Like, what happened to me the other night, you know? You doubt it, right? You find another way to explain it. Because the problem's not the evidence. The problem's the unbelief. The problem's the thing in our hearts that is scared <laughs> to just trust anyone outside of ourselves, including God himself. In fact, um, the better the promise is, the scarier it is to actually believe it. It's a little counterintuitive, so bear with me a bit. But if I, if I read the weather forecast you know, on my phone, and it says, tomorrow it's going to be 45 degrees and sunny, I get my hopes up. I say, cool, tomorrow's going to be a nice day. Because I know if it's 35 and rainy, that's not that bad. You know, I, I didn't lose much there. But if I open my weather app and it says, it's going to be 75 and sunny tomorrow in December. 
and you're going to get off work. And you're going to be able to go for, this is a cool app, right? You're going to be able to, you're, you're going to go for a bike ride in the morning. You're going to, um, your son is just going to be a peach. He's just going to love being around you and your wife. When you, when you go for a walk, he's going to sleep at just the right time. He's going to smile back at you. It's going to be great. You're going to wrap up the day eating a dinner, a beautiful dinner outside. And throughout the day, you're going to meet like 10 different people who are going to trust Jesus for the first time, become members of your church. That's like a dream day for me, okay? Now, if I read that, I probably wouldn't get my hopes up too much because I don't want to be disappointed. I don't want to walk around one day saying, this is all going to happen tomorrow, and then boom, it doesn't. The better the news is, the scarier it is to actually believe it. And this message that the angel is proclaiming, the good news he's proclaiming, the message that I'm proclaiming to you now, it's better than that. It's infinitely better than that. You say, well, I better not believe it too much. And all that reveals is we don't trust the person giving it. We don't trust the one giving it to us. And so Zechariah looks and he says, hey, you got to do better. How will I know? It's kind of insulting, really, to God to treat his promise in that way. If one of you comes up to me and says, Mike, I got you a Christmas gift. I'm going to give it to you on Christmas. And I'm like, show me the receipt. (laughs) How would that hit you, right? You're like, what, you don't believe me? Like, I just told you I'm giving you a present. And God promises us rejoicing is coming. And we say, yeah, give me a receipt. Show me something. It's an insult. It's offensive to him. And, and again, like, think about it. What could he do, right, to actually convince you? The nature of promises is you don't see the proof until the promise is fulfilled. Like, you, you can't see the fulfillment of a promise until the promise is fulfilled. That seems obvious, right? But you see what I'm saying? Does that make sense? I got, I got like, two head nods there. All right. God can't show you the fulfillment of the promise until he actually comes and fulfills the promise. So how are you going to trust him today? You've got to trust the source. You've got to trust the one it's coming from. It's God speaking this. The Bible has this kind of character to it, right? I mean, it's here, right? Like you got one under your chair. i got one up here. I put them on your phones now. And it comes to you and says, this is God's word. And you say, well, but how do I know? Well, okay, there's, there's a lot of interesting arguments out there, right? Historical manuscripts, and we've got a lot of manuscripts, actually, compared to other historical documents, and a lot of prophecies are fulfilled years before they happen. And Okay, that's all interesting. It's worth looking into that stuff. It can be faith-building. But at some point, it comes down to this. Like, this is God's. God said it. Are you going to believe him, or are you not? Are you going to trust him, or are you not? Get your hopes up. <laughs> Get your hopes up for this promise. It's going to be fulfilled. You don't have to hedge your bets. God is going to do it because he's the one who has promised it. And so when Zechariah gets a sign, he gets a sign, but it's a sign God closes his mouth. It's a judgment on him saying, how dare you? How dare you question the words of God? Last reason to get your hopes up at God's promise is because it's already being fulfilled. When we come to the end of our story, uh, Elizabeth does in fact conceive. And when she conceives, the child's still not born. A lot of things can go wrong between conception and birth. He hasn't yet turned the nation of Israel to the Lord to prepare for the coming of the Lord. The Lord himself hasn't yet come. They haven't yet been saved. And yet, in verse 25, Elizabeth can still say, the Lord has done for me. The Lord's been good to me. Because he is the beginning of the fulfillment of that promise. With the coming of Zechariah in her womb, or sorry, of John in her womb. The promise is beginning to be fulfilled. 
And the thing that's happening, verse 25 tells us, is that her reproach is being removed. So remember earlier I said uh, Elizabeth would have been the subject of scorn, right? It would have been a shameful thing for her not to have a child. She's reproached uh, by others. But now that she's conceived, her reproach is removed, and that's the most significant part of it. Because shame's a killer, right? I mean, like, if you live with a sense that something is wrong with me and everybody around me knows it, it'll kill you. Now remember this. It probably already is killing you. Many, many of our lives are affected by this in ways you don't, we don't even understand. Um, remember this, though. Zechariah and Elizabeth are a microcosm of the nation of Israel, right? They're waiting is a microcosm of Israel's waiting. So also this reproach is a microcosm of Israel's reproach. There is a reproach on the nation because the nation has turned from God. Remember verse 16 says that John the Baptist is going to come and he's going to turn them to the Lord their God? The implication of that is that they're not currently turned towards him. They've turned away from him. And so have you and I. And there's a reproach upon us. There's a shame upon us that is rightly ours before God. That causes God to look at us and to say, something's wrong. Something's not the way it's supposed to be. may not be what everyone else is telling you is wrong with you, right? But God does look at us and see, something's wrong. And yet, the message of Christmas, the message of Advent, is he doesn't leave you there. It's not the last word on your life. Another pastor, Rich Velotis, he tweeted the other day, the good news of Advent is not that we are faithful in our waiting. We often aren't. But that God is faithful in his coming. We haven't patiently served him while waiting for the fulfillment of his promise. But there was one who did. When the Lord came in Jesus Christ, he was the truly faithful priest whose entire life was an offering of service to God and to others who didn't deserve it. He was the truly righteous and blameless Israelite. And when he went to the temple, he did went to the temple not made by hands. He went into the heavenly temple, the true dwelling place of God. And while Zechariah offered incense on the altar, Jesus Christ offered himself on the altar. His own body, his own life. Bearing the reproach, not only of the nation of Israel, but of many from every tribe, tongue, and nation. God looks at him, the one human being who had nothing wrong with him, and says, there's something wrong with you, and punishes him because our reproach had been removed from us and placed on him so that God could look at us and receive us and embrace us and accept us with nothing but love, with nothing but grace, with nothing but pleasure. Jesus does this, offers himself in this way, himself in hope, with his hopes up that his death would mean the salvation of many. And indeed it has. The promise is being fulfilled. He rose from the dead three days later, and many have rejoiced at his birth, not only at Christmas, but his birth on Easter when he rose from the grave to a new life that would never perish. Trust this promise today. Some of you are here, and what was described in these baptisms hasn't yet happened in your life. You, you've maybe heard about Jesus, you've maybe known about God, but you haven't actually known him. Your reproach has not yet been removed, and you know there's still something wrong with me that hasn't been dealt with. But you could deal with it today if you trust this promise. If you trust in what Jesus has done for you, your reproach will be removed, and you will be righteous, blameless, spotless in the sight of God. And if you do that, and if you've done that, you can say with Elizabeth today, the Lord has done for me. Whatever you're waiting for in your future, whatever hopes you have for the future, the Lord has done for you in Jesus Christ. The Lord has come. The Lord has saved. 
Rejoice and be glad in this day. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. No more let sins and sorrows grow. He's offered the perfect sacrifice. The weakest, most imperfect service that you render to God is now accepted and pleasing in God's sight because it is offered in the name of Jesus Christ. We don't serve God now waiting to see if he'll like it, waiting to see if it'll be good enough. We don't serve him to prove ourselves anymore. He's already pleased with you in Christ. He already loves you. He already delights in you because he delights in his son. And you are in him through faith. So no service to him has to be burdensome. It's a joy now to serve the one who has saved us, the one who has loved us. Serve him as you wait for the Lord's second coming. The news is really that good, right? You can get your hopes up for it. Your sins, not in part but the whole, are nailed to the cross, and you bear them no more. It's that sure that he's coming again. Just as God promised Zechariah a son, God has promised that he will return, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He will surely do it. Prepare yourself for that day. Turn from your sins to God through Jesus Christ, and he will ensure that you are prepared for the coming of the Lord again. No disappointment in your life has to crush you. No matter how bad your reproach has been, Jesus has borne your reproach on the cross, and when he comes again, he will present you holy and blameless before God. Get your hopes up for this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We confess that um, we're not the most patient, we're not the, we're not the best at waiting, and um, it comes from a, a lack of trust in you, a doubt in you that no amount of evidence actually would solve in the end. We thank you for the evidence you've given, we want to see it, we want to receive it. But we know ultimately, Lord, um, the decision is on us of whether we will trust your promise. I pray, Father, that you would strengthen our faith this morning, I pray you would give the gift of faith to those who do not yet have it. I pray that um, your word would be enough for us, that we would simply trust it, that we would find the safest place for us is entrusting ourselves to you. God, we can't control that. We can't save ourselves. So we cast ourselves upon you. We receive and rest upon you alone for salvation as you are offered to us in the gospel as we heard Jeremiah and Eric commit to do this morning, Lord. And we thank you that you are a faithful God. You do not lie. You do not change your mind. You don't make a promise and then go back on it. You fulfill your promises. And Jesus is the ultimate proof of that. In whom all of your promises are yes and amen. We thank you for him and for his coming. We pray, Lord, that you would give us steadfastness. That you would enable us to continue serving you patiently and even with joy as we wait for the full coming of your kingdom. We long for that day. Hasten it now. In Christ's name, amen.